Hebrews chapter one, let's begin reading together at verse one. Let's read the word of the Lord. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Now, Lord, Thank you for your presence as we've worshiped you together. And I ask you to to anoint me that I may proclaim with clarity of thought and speech your word. And let our hearts be open to hear not so much what I'm gonna say, but to hear what the Spirit is going to say while I'm talking. I lift up other life-giving churches to you and I pray blessing upon them. I take a moment to pray a special blessing upon our pastor Jivko and his family and the churches that he is responsible for. And I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for our sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith and I ask you to draw them back to you. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. Thank you for hearing our prayer that we pray today in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our soon returning King. Amen. You may be seated. He was born in in an obscure village a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never had a family or owned a home, never set foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never wrote a book or held an office. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down 
and laid in a borrowed grave. Over 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure for much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the world as much as the life of this man, as powerfully as this one solitary life. What makes the Christian faith different from all other belief systems is the uniqueness of Jesus. With every other belief system, you have the teachings of the system, but the founder of that religion is not necessary in order to live by the teachings. See, you can take Buddha out of Buddhism and still have Buddhism. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and still have Islam. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism and still have Confucianism. But you cannot take Jesus Christ out of Christianity. To try and take Christ out of Christianity would be like taking notes out of music or numbers out of mathematics. You don't have anything left if you take out Jesus. Christianity is not a creed, not a code, not a cause, not even a church. The essence of Christianity is Jesus. Other religions will tell you, here is a sign to the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Others say, here is a philosophy that points to the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Others are teachers who say, here's the way to find life. Uh, Jesus says, I am the life. Jesus is the hinge upon which all of history turns. He is higher than the highest. He is greater than the greatest. There is no one with whom he can be compared. In trying to tell you about this incomparable Jesus, there are a lot of places to which I could turn, but today I am drawn to chapter one of the book of Hebrews. This letter was written to a group of Jews probably living in Rome around 67 A.D., these Jews had become believers in and followers of Jesus, but had recently come under intense persecution, causing some of them to waver in their faith. In addition, there was a group advocating for a return to the old traditions they had once followed. They weren't counseling a denial of Jesus, just that Jesus should be supplemented to what they had formerly believed. We might understand them as Jesus and Christians. They spoke of Jesus and angels, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and the priesthood, Jesus and the law. And may I just tell you, this is a condition that continues until the present day. Oh, oh we may not hear a lot about adding Jesus to Moses or angels, <clears throat> but on the nightly news, we hear about Jesus and politics Christians. In the halls of academia, we hear Jesus and education. 
In the boardroom, we hear Jesus and enterprise. In the marketplace, we hear Jesus and culture. In this letter, the writer wipes away all the add-ons. It isn't Jesus plus anything. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything. <clears throat> Jesus all by himself is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is better than the law. There is no reason to return to the former traditions and there is no reason to try and attach anything to the work of Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled and surpassed all the old traditions. You cannot add anything to Jesus to make him any more superior than he already is. See, the book of Hebrews does not begin with an argument. It begins with an announcement. At the very beginning of the book, the writer tells us Jesus declares the word of God. There has never been a time in history when God has been completely silent. He has spoken through nature. I, I talked a little bit about this last week when we looked at Psalm 19 and saw the heavens declare the glory of God. He has spoken through nature. He spoke through conscience. God spoke through history. He spoke through the law and through the prophets. There are many ways God has spoken, but now God comes to the most important word he has to say to humanity. Everything he spoke until this point seems together like tributaries to a mighty river, and they merge into one word. All the shadows of the Old Testament and all the voices of the prophets find their substance in one word. The climax of all God has to say to this world is Jesus. Jesus is God's final word. That's why the writer in our text says in verses one and two, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. In his incarnation, Jesus reveals God's final word to this world. What could not be conveyed in nature or in history or in the words of the prophets or in any other fashion, Jesus declares in his person. The gospel writer records in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. See, a word is an expression of an idea. Jesus is the expression of the idea of God. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. He is God's final word. Not only is Jesus God's final word, Jesus is God's full word. Verse three of our text says, and he is the radiance of his glory. See, Jesus does not reflect the brightness of, of God's glory like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Oh no, Jesus is the radiance, the brightness of his glory. Jesus is all God. He is not a demigod. He's not a created heavenly being. He is one and the same as God, fully God. He is the express image of who God is. 
Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's full word. And then we see Jesus is God's focused word. Verse three continues and says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. When he writes about the exact representation, it has the idea of something fashioned from a mold or stamped with a die. When you look at what was stamped and what was used to stamp it, they are identical. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. Jesus said in Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. As you know, those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In English, we would talk about I am the A to Z. In our English alphabet, there are 26 letters, and we combine those letters to form words and sentences and paragraphs and entire books. Everything in our English Bible is made from 26 letters. When Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the Word of God, he's saying what is true about the written Word is true about the living Word. Jesus is every letter used to form everything God has to say to us. Jesus declares God's Word, the Word of God. Jesus, he is God's final word. He is God's full word. He is God's focus word. Jesus is the word God has spoken to us in these last days. Not only that, but then I want you to see from this passage, Jesus demonstrates the works of God. Because Jesus is God, everything God does, Jesus does. And when Jesus does something, it is God doing it. Verse two tells us Jesus is appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. See, Jesus is the reason for creation. A couple of weeks ago, I had someone ask me, pastor, who created the world? Did God create the world or did Jesus create the world? The answer is yes. The very first verse of the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If the Father is God and Jesus is God, then it is correct to say God created the world. It is also correct to say Jesus created the world. In Genesis, we are told the creative work of God was accomplished when God said. What is that? That's his word. God said, let there be and there was. The world was, watch this, the world was created from the mind of God by the word of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Watch this. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Throughout the days of creation, it is the word that goes forth and calls all that exists out of nothing. The word goes forth and light dispels darkness. The word goes forth 
and heaven rises above the earth. The word goes forth and water forms into seas and land emerges. The word goes forth and the earth sprouts vegetation. The, earth, the, the word goes forth and fish swim in the oceans and birds take flight in the skies. The word goes forth and animals populate the earth. There is no science lab. There are no test tubes. There is no engineering firm or construction company. There is simply the word, Jesus, commanding his will. He spoke, and God says, it's good. That's why John 1 and 3 records, all things came into being through him, through the word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's why Paul writes in Romans 11 and 36, for from him and through him and to him are all all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Jesus is the reason for creation. Then our text lets us know Jesus is the ruler of creation. He says in verse 3 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That word uphold means to carry a load. Jesus is the one who keeps this universe running. Jesus is the one who regulates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Jesus is the one who organizes and orchestrates and oversees the details of the galaxies. Jesus holds the stars in their orbits. Jesus keeps this cosmos from becoming a chaos. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's why Colossians 1 and 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. I'm telling you, Jesus is the glue of the galaxies. He commands the morning and causes the dawn to know its place. He rides on the wind and sits on the floods. His way is in whirlwind and storm. He creates streams in the desert. The winds and the waves obey his commands. What a powerful Jesus he is. Jesus is the reason for creation. Jesus is the ruler of creation. Then I want you to know Jesus is the redeemer of creation. The writer tells us here in verse 3 of our text, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, it doesn't take an earned doctorate to realize there is something terribly wrong in this world. And the reason we can't seem to fix the problem is because we have failed to make the proper diagnosis. As a result, we're treating symptoms, but not dealing with the real issue. Ask the philosopher. He will tell you the problem is irrational thinking. Ask the humanist. He will tell you the problem is human weakness. Ask the criminologist. He will tell you the problem is antisocial behavior. Depending on who you ask, you'll come up with all kinds of answers. Some will tell you the problem we have in this world is racism. Others will say it's the so-called woke culture. One group will tell you it's the result of the liberal agenda. Another will say it's a lack of morals in the media. Lack of education, poverty, class entitlement, capitalism, socialism, Marxism, the list is practically endless of ways people define the problem. The problems keep getting worse because we're not addressing the root cause. But the Bible has the answer, the proper diagnosis, the root cause of all the ills of humanity is very simple. It's called sin. And the answer to the ills of the world isn't rehabilitation, it's redemption. 
The answer isn't social activism, it's a savior. The answer in a word is Jesus. <laughs> We've been willing to try everything else except Jesus. We try all kind of stuff and it just keeps going downhill. You would think after a while somebody would wake up and say, maybe we ought to try Jesus. What? Jesus, what does he say? Jesus all by himself made purification for sin. Jesus is the solitary savior. Nobody helped him do it and no one else can do it. Jesus alone saves and you will be saved by Jesus alone or you won't be saved. This was the message of Peter in Acts chapter four, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The hymn writer eloquently captured this idea when he penned, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now watch this. Verse three of our text tells us when Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Most people just read over that. But it's a powerful statement. See, in the Old Testament, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies to offer the sin sacrifice on behalf of the people. There was furniture in the Holy of Holies, but there were no chairs. The priest never sat down because the work of those Old Testament priests was never done. All the animal sacrifices offered were never able to eradicate sin. The only thing those sacrifices could accomplish was to roll the sins of the people forward until someone would come to pay the full penalty for those sins. And then we hear John the baptizer exclaim in John chapter one, verse 29, as he sees Jesus walking along the bank of the Jordan, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Suspended between heaven and earth on a rugged cross planted on top of a garbage heap, the son of God offered up his own life to redeem fallen humanity. Jesus, the spotless, sinless lamb of God took our sin, carried them to the cross, suffered, bled, and died. And then he cried out, it is finished. With his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, his work was done, and Jesus sat down. Nothing more to accomplish. The final payment for sin has been made. Redemption is complete. It is finished. Jesus declares the word of God. He is God's final word, God's full word, and God's focused word. Jesus demonstrates the works of God. He is the reason of creation, the ruler of creation, and the redeemer of creation. And finally, our text lets us know Jesus deserves the worship of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. As deity, Jesus is to be worshiped first because of his superior name. 
that's found in verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. You know, we're never told how many angels have been created. The best information we have talks about a multitude of the heavenly host. And we don't know all the names of all the angels. But the Bible does give us the name of three of them. There's Michael, whose name means who is like God. Gabriel is another angel. His name means man of God. There's one more who was created as an angel but rebelled against God. His name isn't given in Scripture, but the definition of his name you'll find in Isaiah 14. The name is Lucifer. His name means light bearer. Michael was glorious in might because it was Michael who led the armies of heaven. Gabriel was glorious in ministry because Gabriel is the one who brought messages from God to people on the earth. Lucifer was glorious in majesty because he was the anointed cherub, son of the morning, who was appointed to lead the worship of heaven. Name and describe any of the angels in heaven. Jesus is better. As glorious as these angels are, Jesus has a more excellent name. He isn't mighty like Michael. No, he's almighty. <laughs> he isn't a messenger like Gabriel. He doesn't bring the message. He himself is the message, the word. He isn't a star like Lucifer. He himself is the day star, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. Jesus deserves the worship of God because of his superior name. That's why the apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verses nine through 11, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on the earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus deserves the worship of God, first because of his superior name. Then the writer tells us he is deserving of worship because of his sacred nature. That's the meaning here in verse 6. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the meaning of verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. You know, the angels are glorious beings, but they bow in worship to Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And the Bible is very clear in its verse, very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. And yet here we find a command given to angels to worship Jesus. So if Jesus is not God, heaven is filled with idolatrous angels. But because Jesus is God, he is worthy of the highest worship of heaven and earth. Jesus deserves the worship of God because of his superior name, because of his sacred nature. Finally, he deserves the worship of God because of his sovereign nobility. That's verse 8. But of the Son, he says... 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but his throne endures forever. See, this was the promise of the angel in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the declaration of Revelation 11 and 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is why the great multitude joined join their voices in the anthem of worship in Revelation 5:12 and cry out worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing then the refrain is joined by every created thing in heaven and on earth as they proclaim in verse 13 to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 tells about the establishment of his sovereign nobility at the end of the age when John the Revelator writes, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I came to this place today to proclaim in your hearing, Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no sphere over which he does not have dominion. He's Lord over heaven. He's Lord over earth. He's Lord over angels. He's Lord over demons. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over disease. He's Lord over anxiety. He's Lord over depression. He's Lord over every mess you've ever gotten yourself into. He's Lord over your highest hope and your fondest dream. He's Lord over your yesterday. He's Lord over your today. He's Lord over your tomorrow. He's Lord over your destiny. I tell you, he's Lord. Yes, he is. That's what we declare. That's what we declare in our song of worship. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Jesus Christ is Lord. Somebody give him praise in this house. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is Lord whether you choose to acknowledge him or not. His Lordship is not the question. The question 
is whether you will submit to his lordship. Today, you have the opportunity to bring yourself under submission and surrender to Jesus as Lord. But I can tell you, the reality is, if you refuse to do it willingly today, there will come a day when you will have no option but to bow the knee to his kingdom rule. The Bible tells us in the words of our text, God in these last days has spoken to us as his son. If you refuse God's son, Jesus, God doesn't have anything else to say to you. Jesus is God's final word. Will you surrender to Jesus today? Surrender the control of your life to him. Turn from sin and receive his salvation. Some of you have done that, but there's other parts that you haven't surrendered. Your eternal destiny is, we, we got that settled. But he invites you to surrender your care and your concerns your fears, your frustrations. Surrender everything to him. He is Lord. Why don't you just surrender that part of your life to him and stop resisting. Stand with me, please.